Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Sam Curry, the former CSO of CyberReason and now VP and CISO at Zscaler. Sam has a wonderful background where he has served as both CTO, CISO for large organizations, including Arbor Networks and McAfee, in addition to RSA and EMC, where he as a leader has helped drive transformative change. Thank you so much for being on the show, Sam. Appreciate uh, you spending the time with us and uh, welcome to Zscaler. Great to be here and thanks for having me. And I mean that both on the podcast and in Zscaler. And it's, it's been great getting to know you personally as well. Oh, well, well, thanks for that. Muchas gracias. De nada. <laughs> Our colleague, Anne, was doing some prep as we were getting ready for the show. And I saw in one of his notes that um, you have a pretty impressive portfolio of languages that you oh, speak. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. How did you go down the path of becoming a multilinguist? Um, troubled childhood, I think, is probably the best <laughs> way to put it. So I, so I was born in Canada, in Montreal. So French is a freebie, right? That, that's easy. But um, my dad was a classicist. He did Latin and Greek, and that's how he got to college, at which point he switched to physics and computer science. So I guess he sort of got in on the slide there. And then he was the head of computer science and mathematics at the University of Quebec. And Canada does foreign aid by sending teachers abroad. So he worked for something called CEDA, the Canadian International Development Agency. And he went to Morocco to teach. So my first elementary school was in Arabic. And then after that, my grandparents, they do it here in North America, people retire to Florida, but Brits in Europe retire to Spain. So I crossed over and would spend summers with them. I picked up Spanish along the way. And everything else is derived from basically that English, French, my dad grilling me in classics, Arabic and Spanish. I've always enjoyed languages. It's like, it's just in my brain to, to play with them. Did you ever find that uh, curiosity and desire to learn apply to your cyber career? Um, yeah, it's a bit of an addiction. In fact, with languages, uh, well, there's a darker side to it. When I say trouble childhood, I wasn't really joking because we moved around so much. Uh, my accent never fit in. And so I wound up trying to adopt the local accent to not stand out. And so in French, for instance, I learned more North Africa and French, French. And then I go to Quebec and it, it's the differences like between English from England and English from Texas, right? So you suddenly stand out and seem arrogant. So, and the same thing happened with English. My parents are both Brits and I was coming to North America. So you wind up in a situation where people are like, why is your accent changing? It was really tough to fit in. But that passion for learning and looking for patterns, I literally did cryptanalysis as well in my first jobs. And my degrees, at least my bachelor's are in physics with a minor in linguistics and English with a minor in philosophy. So I wanted to be a sci-fi writer, which I failed miserably at, uh, mm -hmm. largely because I didn't spend enough time doing it. But that drove me to cyber. 
right? It was not just codes and things. It, it got me to documentation writing and then QA and then engineering and so on. So my dad, my dad joked with me because he wanted me to stand up comic. He said, I'd hope for better things than my son and to follow me to computer science. But yeah, my brother's actually funnier than me, much funnier. He's also in cyber. So my dad had two failed sons. You could think. <laughs> well, that's always a difficult thing, right? As you're looking at your options in terms of how am I going to make a living and where can I make positive impact? There's the things you know, that you want to do and the other things that you, you hope to do. Well, I don't want to get, this isn't really a therapy session, but, but I will, I will share when I grew up, my dad used to be very pessimistic about the economy. Mm. Um, and he used to say things, maybe it's a generational thing, or maybe it's that but he didn't really grow up with much plenty. He sort of said, Hey, you'll be lucky if you have a PhD to get a job one day. Right. It was very much a bleak, 1970s Cold War attitude. And as a result, I've just learned and struggled to always know more and do more. And the work ethic has just been part of me. Um, but I didn't set out to be a cyber person because we didn't have the word cyber. And I think I was 10 years into this career before I realized I was in it. On the topic of education, hmm. you know, many of us come from non standard fields when we approach this. Some people that rise to the CISO level or to a lead architect or chief architect, they often have a background that is not traditional. It's not simply a expert in risk management or expert in network-based analysis and malware reverse engineering. When it comes to education, what is your perspective on the value of modern college programs, Ooh. various degrees that are out there, and specifically a lot of the certifications that are out there? A lot of folks have asked, how do I break into cyber? Do you find that you tell somebody, go down this path versus a different path? Well, I'll start with that last part first. When people say, how do I break into cyber? Or how do I wind up doing what you do? I say, don't do what I did to get here. Like, because the path was very different. And the number one thing I try to do is to remember that my experience is mostly out of date, right? How, how I got here is probably not relevant to somebody in their 20s or 30s, I probably know people that are much more relevant. So I usually try to say, well, which part of cyber appeals to you and find that and then find some like, I had somebody say, I'm very interested in doing forensics. And I've done forensics my whole life. But I don't do it now. Right. So I went and found two friends of mine to advise that I actually teach um, both at the graduate and the undergraduate level. And so I say, first of all, don't just don't do what I do. And then I really try to get into their shoes and help them. And I think mentoring is super important. So I'm always mentoring someone and I'm involved with local universities here in where I live in Massachusetts. And then we get to the bigger part of your question, I think, which is the role of education. I remember lamenting we didn't have enough STEM, but now we have a lot of STEM and actually the liberal arts are less subscribed to. And even though debt, student debt is a lot lower for people who are in the liberal arts, there's a lot of regret from people who take those jobs because the pay is lower. And so it takes them longer to pay off those debts. And there's a sense that, well, I'm not going to get the, the really high paying jobs from that. It's hard not to think that you go to school to then have a job. And in many cases you do. If you're going to be a brain surgeon, go study brain surgery. If you're going to be an accountant, go study accounting. But I believe in my heart that most of the time you go to school to learn how to learn. You go to learn a different mentality and to be somebody who can rapidly be flexible, adapt, pick up a new body of knowledge and become an expert in it. I certainly 
took that approach and I never did what I studied except for documentation writing briefly. I was never either a physicist or a journalist or an author, but I've had a good career. And so a lot of flexibility involved. And this is one of the reasons that unless you're in an industry where there's a strong barrier without formal check marks, this is in the military, it's in the government, it's in a lot of bureaucracies, or in an industry where you're actually directly going to get paid more when you get those things, by and large, they don't matter that much. The difference, though, is when people first get in, because I think the first rung on the ladder for entry level is too high. And I've had a lot of students come to me and say, I want an entry-level position, but the entry-level requires three to five years of experience, which is ridiculous, right? So I think we as an industry could lower the bars for that and be much more, we're not taking a risk when we hire someone young. What right. we're doing is we're getting somebody on the right path, and that's a responsibility. You, you pay them less, not just not because they're younger, but because they're learning and you're bringing them up and they're growing. But I also believe that diversity isn't just a good thing to do, and by which I mean all forms of diversity, including neurodiversity. I think it's a competitive advantage. And I think you were going there with part of what you said, John. If the opponent is diverse, if the adversary is diverse, and they're not thinking the ways we do, they're thinking many different ways, I want the best possible ideas in defense. I want the best possible ideas in problem solving. Does that, does that help a bit? I, I don't know if I answered all the aspects of what no, you said, but I, I you sparked so much. That does hit upon some of the key things that, that I was asking about. To me, it's fascinating seeing the skill sets that in one portion of our industry, for example, writing, all of a sudden has a very different connotation and a net new capability that's enabled writers through the use of AI language models, where now you're starting to see prompt engineering. Mm -hmm. It's like, so I'm a professional creator of questions. Well, to be able to do that, you have to have a base level of knowledge to know what to ask it. And I think we start getting to this point, which let's say hypothetically in five years, these models continue to evolve and start to morph again. In other words, we find ourselves going back to a more liberal arts mm. focus if a lot of the heavy lifting on the really technical stuff is now being done by AI. And it's more, can I get it to do what I want it to do? And I know you've spoken and written about AI and the implications of it. What have you observed, let's say, since the public release of the, the GA of chat GPT, what are your thoughts in terms of these capabilities that are now accessible to everybody? And there's a, there's a ton to unpack there. So I had a friend who said, uh, oh, you know, what's it going to be like to study Shakespeare now? What's pointless? And I said, and I looked at her and I said, really? Like, you think studying Shakespeare is not worthwhile anymore? I mean, it's not like chat GPT can stand up and put on a performance for you. It's not like, it's not like in class, it can have an opinion and enter a debate. It's not like, it's not like you can fill out a blue book problem. And, and, and we all remember those blue books we had to write live. You couldn't, you know, go to the computer for that. So you still got to build the base skills. But I think of my, my daughter's 10 and she, um, she's doing math, right? And she learned arithmetic and she didn't do it with a calculator, but she knows how to do it. When she's mastered that, she'll use a calculator and she'll move on to other things. 
I remember, and you probably do too, Sean, we weren't allowed to use calculators. Everybody freaked out that we could get them cheaply. Um, people also freaked out when Google came along and they said, wait, what are research papers if you can look anything up and don't have to go to the library? And so I'll add, I'll add one more little thing, which is I teach cyberterrorism as one of the courses because I have a master's in counterterrorism and, and the kids are awesome. And when this came out, it happened so fast. Like ChatGPT, I think it grew to 100 million users in just over two months, which is one of the fastest growths in applications on the internet ever, pretty much, including some amazing growth in social media. And I thought to myself, does the college, this is, I, I teach at Wentworth and, and Nichols College, but it was Wentworth. And I said, does the college have a policy? And I checked with the dean. And, no, we don't. So I made one. I said, okay, in my class, this doesn't apply to other classes. And if the college comes up with one, it'll supersede this. But in my class, you can use it. And the reason you can use it is because you're computer science students and you, you should know how to use these tools. <clears throat> but here's what happens. You have to cite it. If you don't cite it, it's plagiarism. And I don't care about whether it's actually sentient or not. And I'm telling you it's considered sentient. It, we considered um, plagiarism in my course. And that way I know you did it. And I'm now not going to forgive anything about not using APA style. I'm not going to forgive any, any, like the style of the writing, the flow, the structure. I'm not going to forgive weasel words and fluff, fluff words. And I'm also going to hold you accountable that the facts are correct and the citations are right. Cause you got to go verify all that. And I'm going to judge you almost entirely. Cause if you get those wrong, you'll fail. Because you didn't use the tool correctly, but I'm going to do almost entirely on how you guided it to make a good argument with good support. In essence, I made the act of writing the paper something that they're responsible for, but it's more transparent to them. And now I want them thinking about what's my thesis, what's my three points, and what's, what sources am I going to allow it to ingest or am I going to force it to take? That's a much higher order task that they now have to do. So I said, you, you make the choice. You can do this the old fashioned way. You're in college. You're supposed to have learned how to write papers by now or use ChatGPT. And here's the, here's a different rubric for that. That's the, the piece that I find fascinating, especially in very short order here. I'm going to be a grandfather and I was having this conversation with my son who is a linguist. That's mm -hmm. his undergrad. He oh, loves wow. languages. Oh, loves... Congratulations. It may be premature, but congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I remember doing some uh, post-production uh, on one episode and he walked in, he had come over just to say hi. And I was struggling with this one component and I couldn't figure it out. Dad's the nerd. He is the creative, a uh, big thinker. Dad's the nerd. And I've got this waveform in front of me. Mm -hmm. And he was at this point, I think his senior year. And he goes, oh, what are you working on? And I said, oh, I just got to finish up something for, for a show. And, and he goes, who's that speaking? Do they have a lisp? And I was like, what? <laughs> I looked at him like, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, no, you see that part of the waveform? He just points at it like right on my screen. And he goes, that looks like siblings. And I said, how the hell can you tell that? He goes, oh, well, it has this property and this. And I go right to that piece because I'm like, no way. He was right. That's awesome. What I thought about that is going back to this idea of AI and the knowledge and all of this. I didn't know that. 
he had the base understanding fundamentals to look at it, even though he's never worked with the waveform outside of one class he took. He had enough knowledge to say, oh, yeah, that looks like a problem. You might want to fix that. So I use that example in the context of what you were saying, which is, will this next generation of professionals, Hmm. will we arm them enough so they know how to properly query the AI? So they know yeah. when it's the best time to use it. Or will we find ourselves saying, not unlike your calculator example, well, the calculator will just do the work. Well, I had access to calculators. You know, I didn't go very far in mathematics ever. And I still couldn't figure it out because just not a strength of mine. I think you're right on it. And, and I'm going to add two things to what you said. The first is, have you heard of leaky abstraction? No, I don't it, think I'm familiar it's with that. An, it's an engineering principle where in engineering and computing, what we do is we actually make what's called abstraction layers or abstractions. So, but every time you make an abstraction, you're simplifying something. So a good example, or maybe a bad example is the dashboard and the controls in a car. The engine's far more complex and the mechanics, but the interface for the end user, very simple. Leaky abstraction is that if you don't understand how it works underneath that abstraction layer, you will have unintended consequences with how you interact with it. So this is a really important point. So if you if you never, ever looked under a hood or even understood what a transmission was or how a car works, and you see this with new drivers, some of the understanding gets a little better with time. But if you don't know it, then you might be tempted when driving down the highway to stop the car by putting it in reverse. After all, that's the way you go backwards, right? right? So you slam on the brakes and you'll stop faster, put it in reverse. And anybody who knows anything about cars goes, oh, don't do that, Right. Now, the second point is that, um, so when it comes to learning in our field, what I'm worried about is that we have an adversary. If our behavior becomes too predictable in defense, right? That the way these generative language models work is that they work off of what we do. And then you get this gigantic feedback mechanism that says, well, all we're doing is the things it's telling us to do. So we're not innovating in defense, but they're still innovating in offense. They're still finding ways around us. And so we get into ruts and we may get into ruts in two ways. One is by habit. That is, we are trained to only do defense in a few ways and breaking out of it is hard without those skills you mentioned now. The other one is poisoning. The sources that, that the generative AIs or generative language models and so on want to follow is the sources that they go to in order to tell you, well, hey, the next thing in the attack framework that they may do in your, in your incident response those can be poisoned by the attackers to mislead you. And that's not trivial. In fact, in, in the world of, of viruses right now, as much as 35% of threat intel is poisoning with garbage put in by adversaries. So it's very much a done thing. And it will happen because they're, in, they're innovating in offense. So <clears throat> I think in some, to some degree, this will demand that we stay on top of those models. And there's a whole bunch of innovation opportunities. So we won't be doing some of the grunt work. And if you just use those, you will be very good at it. And the interesting work will be in the innovation side. But there's going to be a period of time when if you're just using generative language models and whatever follows, you're going to be really bad. Um, I know I know you like stories, so I have to share a chess story. Do you, do you play chess? Very poorly, but yes. <clears throat> so I had to 
pleasure of meeting Gary Kasparov in 2018. He was a grandmaster. Uh, not because I'm cool, just because I was the same show as him. And, Did you um, win? <laughs> Did you win? No, no, I didn't win. <laughs> anyway, I would have loved to lose to him multiple times. But he talked about what it was like to play against AI, play chess. And um, he said when he, he used to beat it and beat it and beat it. And then one day he was beaten by it. He went, oh. And he said it was crushing. Like it was depressing. Um, this was back in 2018. He said this and he said, um, so he came back and he beat it. And he beat it. And he beat it. And then he lost. And gradually it started to win more until eventually it beat him more than it lost. And then it won all the time. But he said that for about 10 years, there was a period of time when chess was dominated not by humans or machines, but by assisted humans. And I think that's the phase we're going into where eventually the machines will get really good at this. Sure. But there's a period in the complexity of the human conflict realm which is far more statistically large as a space than chess. It's even bigger than Go. Although somewhere out there, there's a Go player listening to this seething, but it is. It's a very big world that we have conflict in. Um, he's right. And we're going to be, in, we're entering the phase. And I don't know if it's going to last because the rate of improvement three months or if it's going to last 30 years, but there's a period in which assisting humans in offense and defense running asymmetric games are going to dominate. The idea of poisoning the data well is something that I've been fascinated with, specifically when you look at the influence campaigns that have been launched by adversaries mm. on social media. And the folks that they target tend to be far more susceptible to this, where they will take at face value, oh, of course, this threat actor isn't attacking the United States. That can't be true because I just saw it on my Facebook feed. And these generative models, to me, this idea of poisoning is something that makes me go, wow, th this is definitely going to be a net new vertical. Just the same way that SEO became its own thing. I can see organizations doing nothing but, if you think about it in the context of even marketing, right? If you're trying to determine whether or not you're going to buy a Sennheiser headset or a Sony headset, and you go and you ask a generative model, which is the best, it's in the interest of both of those manufacturers to feed information that will have the model return something that is beneficial in terms of the outcome. Yeah, and someone someone's going to make a case for it's in the benefit of the audience at some point, just like they used to with saying, like, oh, some people want advertising. They want to be told what to buy. Um, I sort of always sit there and go, hmm, that's the case. But it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It won't be necessarily the most malicious use. Usually that's not where it becomes mainstream. It, it'll be the commercial interest. So if you're asking ChatGPT for advice, at first it will say things like, well, like, can't give you that sort of advice. And then you'll say, no, really, hypothetically, you'll get around the boundaries and they'll say, oh, here's what I found. But wherever it's looking for that and wherever it's pulling it together, that's susceptible to influence and it will get influenced, plain and simple. You're right. Yeah. I, I just don't see how, like you said, it's, it's inevitable. I don't see how that isn't going to occur. If it isn't already, some smart people out there have to be yeah. thinking about this in the advertising world. 
I, I imagine that uh, it's probably occurring and we're, we're just not fully aware. Right. I mean, arguably, this has been happening via various social media models with targeted advertising uh, in one way or another, where you're basically feeding things that you suspect based upon various data points that will resonate. I have a suspicion that the real reason that everyone's rushing to get their generative language models out in the wake of open AI is not because they want the bragging rights. It's precisely because the ones that become the interface for use are the ones that will have the captive audience in the future for the business models. I think that's a really good point. And it's the land grab. Yeah, it's the land grab. Everyone's trying to claim their stake. Mm -hmm. Have their stake needed too. <laughs> Where do you see this having the most influence, whether it's a generative model like ChatGPT or uh, things like stable diffusion with uh, image generation? How do you think these technologies will impact for the good what it is we do, which is risk management and protecting organizations? Do you see it being much more leveraged by the adversaries initially mm -hmm. or by the defenders? Well, I see it as asymmetric. Mm -hmm. um, and remember that some of the, some of the, some of the best learning and advancement in, in artificial intelligence and in applied artificial intelligence was through GANs, right? The, the the, I think it was generative adversarial networks was what they were called. So you, and in fact, I think they were the they were the ones that had three players rather than just two in them. So Go, for instance, was an example of this. When when the really good Go artificial intelligence emerged, it started to come up with strategies humans couldn't have or had never conceived of. It was through these. And in fact, some of them started to generate new ways of speaking and languages because they were, had two parties trying to talk to each other and one trying to break the code. And so these they'd have like three AIs. They started, I guess there were pseudo AIs, but three relatively intelligent approaches to trying to both create new codes and break codes in that world, it, it, the advancement happened at a shocking rate. And I think what we're going to find is that they're asymmetric. In other words, what the defenders do that is radically different from what the attackers do. But here's my big fear. It's that we put these guardrails on things like OpenAI. I mean, if you ask OpenAI, hey, can you give me a contract? It'll say, I'm not a lawyer, so no. And if you say, hey, could you... Did you write? I did this the other day just for fun. I said, can you please write me a dirty limerick about this? And said, hey, I'm not allowed to be filthy. I can't say dirty words. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a bummer. But so, that, so what we've done is we've put the, the, the model can still do it, but we've put boundaries around it. But the people that are going to be building tools on offense, they don't have those boundaries. They're just going to take the source. They're going to go build it. And they're not going to, they're not going to put the guardrails that don't let them write malware with it. And they're going to keep advancing. What we need in defense is the exact same ability to build offensive tools like theirs so that we can do the red teaming and the, and the purple teaming and the pen testing. And in fact, so you can do things like the rest of the rainbow, right? We talk about yellow teaming, right? And green teaming. So you can build the tools for the blue team and for the red team to do their thing. But if we're putting guardrails on the publicly available ones, and we're not building the offensive toolkit capable ones, just like the people who build things that Kali Linux. Having that available has upload, upgraded our ability to do pen testing on a much wider scale. We got to avoid making sure that, that hey, the tool, you know, let's put the genie back in the bottle. 
Don't use this for offensive purposes. Sorry, people are doing that. Therefore, we need to be able to do it in defense. And that is make weapons so you can be prepared to defend against them. But yeah, I think it's going to happen. It's happening right now. And the question is, in our separate races, who's going to run the race better? Because this is, I sometimes say security is a sport, but it's really a, it's really a, a race of rates of improvement. And mm-hmm. to date, the attackers have been improving at a faster rate than the defenders. That has to be turned around somehow. Where do you think a security leader that is currently evaluating methods of leveraging some of this technology, where do you think they could make the most impact either to their security programs for the purposes of helping empower their staffing and and their teams? What might be one or two ways that somebody could begin leveraging tomorrow Hmm. some of these technologies for the betterment of their security program and posture? The first thing I'd say is play with it. I mean, you can go get an account and start playing with it. And and when I say play with it, I mean really play with it, right? Ask ask it to ask it to write you a poem. Ask it to write you a Python script for something. Ask it to write you some some offensive code, right? Something like that. Um, then um, encourage your teams to do so too, right? And start talking about it with folks. Then have a hackathon, and by which I mean sit down with some folks and say, hey, we've got some problems in front of us. Take a day and we're going to have a competition to see who can find the best problem to solve with this toolkit. We used to do this when I was at EMC. I, I was a, a distinguished engineer and we used to run these workshops where we came up with patents and we'd put people in the room from all walks of life, a product marketer, a salesperson, um, an engineer. And what we would do is say, here's a tool. We have no idea what you might use it for. Find interesting problems and applications for it. And usually after about four or five hours, they would come out of the room with two or three things that were patentable. And that's quite remarkable. So I would, I would say once they've played with the tools a little bit, then you do this competition. You say, go find the things that you could solve or, or, or fix with it. And I actually don't care if it's security or not. You'll get a bonus if it is, right? Some kind of like uplift. But if it's a problem for the company, great. If it's a problem that helps you do something better for your like after school soccer coaching, then that's great too. But like, Go do something with it and come back here and we'll all vote. You can do that right away. So staying on the, the, the idea of education and preparing not just the next generation, but the current generation mm-hmm. of cybersecurity leaders and professionals, I, I understand that you spend a lot of time giving your time to mentor students, mentor other professionals. How does that approach and that experience you have with a wide array of different professionals, how has that informed the way that you approach discussions with very senior leaders, for example, uh, board of directors? Hmm. Do you find that there's a translation that you've used in your academic life that makes it easier for you to get across whether it's key risks, key initiatives, or do you approach it in a very different way in terms of educating 
really senior leaders. So whether it's finance, a chief risk officer, or a member of the board. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you have to know your audience, right? So sometimes this doesn't work. So this, this, what I'm about to share will work, except when it doesn't. So know your audience, right? <laughs> I, hope, I hope that makes sense. But, um, generally speaking, uh, one of the reasons that I mentor is, and one of the reasons that I teach is teaching is the best way to learn. And every time I'm teaching a class, I find a new insight myself. And if you can't explain something simply, you probably don't know it well enough. And so I'm always finding new analogies. I'm always finding new ways to discuss it. Um, I, I also believe it's fundamentally grokkable, which might be a bit naive of me. It's, I think everything we do in cyber is, it could be a bit of Dunning-Kruger, right? Which is that having done this for 30 years, I don't know the full extent of what I know. And so it can be daunting as you start to unpack it to realize what you have to explain. But my job really is to make this stuff approachable and understandable and find the path for them. And that helps. But when you're talking to the board or when you're talking to executives who aren't cyber, it's a fundamentally social thing. Trust is, trust is about credibility, right? Do you know, do you know your thing and reliability? Are you going to be there? And we usually blame those two things, by the way, when we say we don't trust someone, but most people are credible and reliable, right? They get weeded out if they're not. It's about intimacy. Do we enjoy each other's company? So what the way that you win in the boardroom is by meeting everybody not in the boardroom and enjoying each other's company. And then it's about aligning to goals. And, and those four things do a lot, like a lot. And I'll share, I love sharing my failures, by the way, because they can be pretty funny, but I'm going to share one here. Um, <clears throat> I, right after I left RSA, and people can look this up, but LinkedIn, I had a very short stint at a company. You can take a peek for that. Um, I made a big mistake. Uh, I, I turned up and I was a new member of the C-level and I was a head of engineering and CISO. And um, I was out to prove that I was the smartest cyber person in the room. Dumb. Like, really dumb. They all knew that. Like, they did. So every time something cyber came up, I was like, look at me. I jumped on it and answered it. What I should have done was shut up because I shouldn't let them feel like they could own it and be part of it and feel smart. And I should have jumped on everything that wasn't cyber to prove I was a business person. Because that's what they didn't believe. They thought, oh, Curry, yeah, he's that cyber dude who plays with firewalls and stuff, right? And so it's really about being a business person at a certain point and relating to people. I say, except when it doesn't. I'll go back to that just briefly. Sometimes you need to, you know, if you're talking to a CFO who's a numbers person, do numbers. Show a program. But by and large, most of the time, what I said will will work best. Should I bring a calculator? Yeah, and ChatGPT. <laughs> yeah, and then, by the way, if you don't have the social skills, it doesn't matter as long as you're making the effort. Soft skills. One of our colleagues, Brian, talked about soft skills. Talks about soft skills, but um, I call them power skills. They're the secret weapon. Right. So if you, empathy and communication skills and um, being able to relate to people is a huge, huge deal for cyber for anybody. By the way. Like what you do here, by the way. Sam, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the CISO's Gap. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe.
Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.